You're listening to Driving Law, a podcast by Kyla Lee about all things related to the rules of the road. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Driving Law. I'm uh, Kyla Lee, and with me is Paul Doroshenko. He's back. I'm back. You're back, yes. Um, so this week, I'm going to be talking to Roy, so you're only here for half the podcast. I'll take half. Um, yeah, we're talking to Roy about the uh, $50 penalty that ICBC is making people pay for having drivers that aren't listed on their insurance. It's a penalty after the fact, or no, is a, no, you pay it's a, it at the beginning? You pay it at the beginning, but it's basically a penalty. And Roy will explain why. I'm sorry, is it like a surcharge? Is it's it grudge like... money. Okay, well, I'll look forward to listening yeah, to it. you can yeah. listen. Yeah, the discussion with Roy is, uh, is going to be very interesting. Good. But I wanted to talk to you first about some very big news that came out this week about speed limits. Yes, this was, uh, I mean, uh, among the groups which uh, I am... A part of this was a huge discussion topic and I've been so busy this week I haven't been able to follow it to the extent that I wanted to but uh, yeah big news yeah so the after 2014 when they increased the speed limits on roads like the Coquihalla and the Sea to Sky and other highways in British Columbia that's one on the island I think the island highway they increased oh, it the as island well highway yeah. for sure yeah. um, they found that a study published in the Journal of Sustainability done by some UBC scholarship Cyclists. people yeah. well i I'm, I'm seeing a cynical look on your face paul and we'll get to that um found that there was a 118 percent increase in fatal crashes a 30 something percent increase in injury crashes and a 43 percent increase in insurance claims along those sections of the highways where the speed limits had been increased uh, each article, and I've only skimmed them, seems to only point to the Coquihalla. Uh, I cannot imagine that the Island Highway would have seen any oh God, significant no. increase the at Island all. The Island Highway is wide, it's flat, it's straight, it's Every really time I'm boring on to there, drive. there's nobody on it. There's nobody there. I know. No. The only people probably who are getting in crashes there are drunk people. Yeah. No, I, I, I probably that's true. I would expect that's true. I, I just I cannot see any... Uh, reasonable likelihood of there being an increased risk on the Coquihalla Highway. I guess I'm going to start off and I'm going to lay out my bias here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I'm I'm not a member of any political party. I'm a former member of the BC Liberal Party. Uh, and it really seems to be uh, that we have a party of cyclists, which is the, uh, the Green Party and maybe the NDP, and a party of drivers, which is uh, with the BC Liberals who increase the speed limits. And this to me, seems like an ideologically driven um, result. And that concerns me. Um, and also what concerns me is that you can have a very small number of accident increases. They can be minor or they can be serious. And that can skew the results significantly because there's actually not that many accidents overall on the Coquihalla. Um, yeah, I mean, I would agree with that, that there's not that many accidents overall. Um, But I would also say that as far as these figures go, they're not accounting for speed as the cause of the crashes. And I would have to question whether some of the crashes are as a result of drivers not adjusting their speed to match the flow of traffic or to meet the speed limit. 
like they're just looking at the number of accidents overall, the number of injury claims overall, the number of deaths overall. But it's just as dangerous to drive below the speed limit when everybody else around you is going at or above the speed limit. Um, it, it poses as much, if not sometimes in certain circumstances, more of a risk. Well, I also don't think they have enough years. I mean, what, what years uh, of information? So they're so only using one year three, of information? No, no, no. Or? They increased the speed limit in 2014. So you're looking no. at data from 2014, 15, 16, 17, maybe part of 2018. Did they did they actually go that far back? I mean, I know. you know, we have last winter was a horrible, horrible winter. Well, this is uh, the other thing. You know, the... Uh, the, the Collisions on the Coquihalla were significant. There was a number of them. There were, you know, we drove past them, uh, going to trials in uh, in Golden and other places. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there was uh, weather conditions should be taken into account for these things. Yeah, and we but, have but had not, we've had a huge increase. I mean, we mm-hmm. we all know that global warming exists, and those of you who are global warming deniers, you can go, you know, scream into the void. Um, but we know that this happens. We know that we're seeing more extreme weather patterns. We're not accounting for other explanations for these crashes. But there is no doubt that, you know, the faster you're going, the there is a, a slightly increased uh, risk of certain types of crashes. I think, I, I, I think, you know, just intuitively, I if we all drove 30 kilometers an hour in the city or 20 kilometers an hour or 10, uh, you know, we probably would have very few significant collisions. Sure. Um, if we all we'd have a lot of people beating 50, each other with like tire uh, irons. Fifty kilometers an hour on the highway, we'd have very few collisions. I mean, and and where are you going to to sort of draw the line there? I, it seems to me, um, and when I first started, uh, you know, again, I haven't really. I, I saw the articles. I just disregard them because they seem to be timed with. Um, just enough time after uh, NDP government being in power that they're ideologically driven, in my view. But um, the, um, the the government said when they increased those speed limits that there would be times they would need to tweak things in the future. Oh, sure. There's and not spots. every speed limit might be appropriate for every location. And, and there's a few spots on the Coca-Cola where, you know, I'm driving at 120, sometimes 125. And I'm thinking to myself, yeah, you know what? This is a little fast for this spot. You know, this is a spot where probably it should still be 110. Yeah. Uh, and there's no there's no reason why speed limits can't change on various parts of the highway where it's safe to go 110 or where it's safe to go 120 and, yeah. and make it, uh, you know, they have variable speed limits. They do that all over Germany. There's variable speed limits. The speed well, limit changes. I was we coming, can do that here. I was coming back from court. I had court in Merritt last year. And it was the day, one of the days where the Coquihalla ended up shut down for three days because of a snowstorm. And I was one of the last cars that made it through, through the shutdown. And it was like whiteout conditions. I was petrified. And there were huge semi-trucks passing me. And I was going like 90. I mean, I was not going to go 120 in those conditions. I was going like 90 and they were passing me. And I thought, this is insane. Like, if you're not adjusting your speed relative to conditions, which is always an obligation you have under Section 144.1c of the Motor Vehicle Act, um, if you're not doing that, then, you know, perhaps that's the explanation. I'm not dissing truckers because when you're up in a truck, you actually, your visibility can be pretty good. Oh, probably. Yeah. So the, um, there's times that it may feel that that's a safe speed. The problem is that it's not a safe speed for the other vehicles on the road. This is the Uh, thing. And I think the truck speed limits, um, are, are something they could do. I also think they could do a right lane speed limit, uh, you know, of 110 and the rest is 120. Like on Um, the, uh, like on the Autobahn. 
Sure. I mean, you, the, and, or trucks are required to stay to the right anytime that there's more than uh, two lanes, so that they're not entitled to ever go into the left-hand lane. Uh, those are things they do on the Autobahn as well. You'll never ever see a truck in the far left-hand lane in the Autobahn. Um, and, uh, you know, it, perhaps it's uh, an issue also of enforcing our new left-hand uh, lane laws. This you know, is the other thing. They, they came in at the same time. Yeah, well, they came in um, around the same time, yeah. But the, the, the there's never been the educational campaign uh, that we need to have in this province about proper highway etiquette, uh, you know, in our our well, it's beyond of etiquette time now. It's proper highway lawful but driving. It, but it's but it's also etiquette. I mean, you, if somebody's coming up behind you and you're in the left hand lane, you have no business being in the left hand lane. Get out of the left hand lane. Get over to the right hand lane. But it's also I I had this yesterday. I was in the left hand lane trying to pass this you know douche uh, to put no. it lightly who then started speeding up right as of course I get in the left hand lane to be a douche um, and well there's so, the etiquette issue yeah no. and so then I you know I slow down because I figure whatever I'll let him get ahead of me and then I'll turn over um, and get back get behind him now that he's sped up fine um, and this car comes up and gets right on my ass so I'm like okay I'd better get over but this guy's keeping me from changing lanes I've had my signal on for a while he knows what I'm trying to do he's keeping me from doing it I've got a guy on my ass so I just floored and passed him. Passed him. Well, that's what you do in Germany. You, and you, you never ever, on the Autobahn, you do not permit anyone to pass you on the right-hand side. And you're actually not permitted to pass somebody on the right-hand side. So if they it's, slow down in the left-hand lane, you've got to slow down and stay behind them so they can get into the right-hand lane. And this is an issue of educating the population. If you're going to do it the way that we're doing it now. Yeah, but it's also an issue of making what's the safest choice when you're in a circumstance where no matter what you do, you're going to have to break a law, right? Which is what situation I was in. Either I had to be a person in the left-hand lane that wasn't passing and let the other guy get ahead of me and then, you know, well, the guy's on my ass. Or I had to exceed the speed limit to pass. Well, I don't, I think you broke the law, Kyla. I think yes, you, I did yeah. break the law, yeah. but I did it out of necessity. It wasn't a necessity. You could have started signaling. Me. Signal, slow down, pull over. If you start signaling, chances are he's gonna he's gonna wait until you get out of the lane, even if he is tailgating. No, because when I uh, when I put my signal on and started to slow down, he switched into the lane, the right lane, to try and pass me. Well, so then, then I sped up. You could have slowed down more, and then he, anyway, everyone he, was being a jerk. I get it. There was options, and you chose the option. Yes, and you too. have to do that as a driver. You can't always. Take the option that is um, that is lawful because safety has to be the priority, right? You have to make sure that you're safe and everyone else on the road is safe. Nice justification. Yep, that's right. That's why I'm aware. Oh. Um, okay, but speaking of truckers, because it's interesting that you mentioned truckers, the other thing I wanted to talk about um, today was the charges that have been laid against the trucking company involved in the Humboldt crash. I know. I read the article about it, and it didn't say that they were charges related to the Humboldt crash. Um, they they said the trucking company has been charged with a bunch of violations, but it didn't say that it was in respect to that incident in the article I read. So I don't know. I mean, there was lots of charges. I couldn't see all of those charges arising out of that one incident. I think no. it was maybe just an investigation of that company. Well, there was an investigation. We know that following yeah. the Humboldt crash. Well, of course, yeah. 
Um, so some may be out of that incident and some, you know, a significant number by the looks of it are probably not out of that incident, but it'll be interesting to see because it wasn't, it wasn't clear to me. Was it clear to you? Was it? No, it wasn't clear to me, but I assumed that there were charges stemming from the Humboldt crash just because of the connection made in the article. And also because a lot of what people were saying was part of the cause was that the company was putting pressure on its drivers to drive, you know, in circumstances where they shouldn't have been. I will bet that you could go into any trucking company and if you did that level of investigation, you would find every one of them um, have committed some sort of violations or another. And oh, I'm sure. not knocking the trucking companies. It's, it's, no. you, know, you can be, ex- you can be an extreme stickler on those rules. There's some flexibility on those rules. There's decisions that they make on a day-to-day basis where I know they're making a decision to violate the rules. Oh, and you're knocking me for violating the rules the other day because I was concerned for my safety. The other day? Yesterday. Oh, yeah. No, I'm knocking you today for it. Yeah. yeah. The, um, the, you're not a trucking company. You're, uh, Kyla Lee, a lawyer, a driving lawyer. Yes. Ar- and I ar- arguably, and I think applied the my number knowledge one, of the law. Number one driving defenses. lawyer in the province. Well, thanks. Um, no, but what. Assuming that some of those charges relate to that particular incident and the driver involved in the very serious collision, assuming that's the case, does that not raise some very big issues for the criminal prosecution of the driver? I just hope the, um, the driver is in a position to mount the defense that he needs to mount because I think he's... I mean, I I have real trouble with him being charged based on the evidence that we've seen. Yeah, um, and I mean, I assume this may there's pose, stuff we don't know. This may pose more. Well, I'm assuming that too. Obviously, I'm assuming there's a lot we don't know. But you know, you and I are pretty good at predicting the future. And the charge approval standard my, is different in Saskatchewan. I know. Uh, you and I are pretty good at predicting the future with most of the files that we get, and often on not a whole lot of information, we can figure out what's going to go on. Um, the uh, no, I, I mean it, I, it. It certainly will raise some arguments that um, the crown may not have anticipated uh, with respect to the criminal charge. So mm-hmm. this is an investigation that is done. I, I assume it's a company out of Alberta. So I assume it's Alberta and Saskatchewan Transportation. Um, you know the regulation uh, regulating uh, offices dealing with this investigation uh, because they are able to obtain records from those offices. Um, uh, yeah, it'll be interesting to see. I mean, you know, are they working in concert with the Crown or are they just, um, you know, are they um, uh, doing their own investigation? And I would imagine they're doing their own investigation because they're yep. separate organizations and uh, the Crown isn't just going to be, you know, uh, involved at all necessarily in those investigations. The Crown that are dealing with the uh, with the dangerous driving causing death. Yeah, I um, I wouldn't disagree with you about that. I guess my my bigger concern is how do charges that are laid against the company for making people drive for longer hours than they're necessary, um, or whatever violate logbook requirements, or or whichever charges apply to the Humboldt crash. How does that impact upon the determination of the mens rea component of the dangerous driving test? 
I'm going to skip to the end and say that it probably doesn't. Really? But it's got to be a marked departure of the standard of a reasonable person. And the reasonable person standards as you put yourself in the shoes of the person with their knowledge, skills, training, and experience at the time. Well, training and experience, okay, well, that's an angle that I'm not taking. My angle is that um, you get behind the wheel. Uh, if your employer tells you to get behind the wheel and you're in no condition to get behind the wheel and not properly trained to get behind the wheel, then you don't do it. Uh, but, maybe but again, you it's think an you're issue. Properly trained well, because know, your employers yeah. misled you that's, into believing that's, that. That would be your argument at trial. My view is that you you know don't set out to do something unless you unless you are uh, capable of doing it. Now, you know, I'm I'm applying maybe a negligent standard instead of a criminal standard. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, Sounds like uh, you are. <laughs> Sounds like an acquittal. <laughs> yeah, it might be an acquittal. If it came to my court, I might be applying a different standard. If I was the judge, I'll never be a judge, but if I was the judge. Um, but uh, I, I agree with you that it raises some significant issues, whether or not they are determinative issues or they just end up being distractions along the way I'm, I'm, I, I can't say. I don't know. I don't know. Do you know? No, I don't know. But I think it may no. have some bearing. And that's where I think this is really interesting. And Bearing or distraction along the way? No, I think actual material bearing on the issues to be determined in the case. And I think that now that these charges have been laid, assuming there are some of them are in connection to the crash, I think it would be it would behoove the Crown to revisit their charge assessment in light of this new information. I would imagine they're reassessing their case all the time in this one. Um, and uh, I think there's a there's an interesting thing that happened when the charges were announced, um, you know, the families were appeared to be happy about the fact that there were charges announced. But to my surprise, the public calling in, I was on mm-hmm. uh, Linda Steele's show, the public calling in and the emails they were getting were generally supportive of the driver because uh, you know there's a lot of people from BC who come from Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba. We know these intersections. I've driven at these intersections. There's sure. a you know sometimes they'll have 20 signs to warn you about the upcoming stop sign because it's a such a dangerous one or it's one where there had been an accident before. These stop signs on rural roads where it's it's just dead flat coming up on a spot that's you know a, a crossroad that you can't really see in any way because it's you know a, a winter highway um, it, are, are, are dangerous and you you don't have to be driving dangerously um, to cause one of these collisions it, it happens that it was dangerous after the fact but your your quality of your driving doesn't uh, you know, <laughs> may not impact it it's not it doesn't reach that marked departure standard right. so I, I i'm a significant I, I think a significant portion of the population recognize that and i think that's a bit surprising for the crown because you know often we see not often in bc but sometimes it almost seems like a, a crown um, i wouldn't say vendetta but um instead of justice it's it's uh um looking for something else. It's almost um, spiteful that a person is charged in some circumstances. And this is... Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't use the word spiteful. I think you're searching for a different I'm searching word. for a different yeah. term. It's, it's elevating the public interest above good sense about the law. I don't even think... No, I don't think it's the public interest. I think it's elevating the, the desire for blood. 
um, that we the that we have the retribution aspect of it, um, and I, I I worry that that is the case in this circumstance, and that they've they've misjudged the public's uh, desire to see um, this person prosecuted. Uh, accidents happen, collisions happen. They're not always to the level of being a criminal. Um, you know, there might be something else. In any event, it's. Uh, It'll be an interesting to see thing to see how that one plays out. It's going to be a big news story. You know, one thing that I've noticed over the course of my career, lots of things are big news stories, and the media will go out there and they're there at the first appearance of the person, and of course, the first appearance usually just the lawyer nothing. appears, and nothing happens. <laughs> nothing happens, and you know, and then it was adjourned two weeks, and then no, you know, no media are going to go back in two weeks, and of course not. And then often the things forgotten about, and sometimes they're forgotten about entirely. This one won't be forgotten I, about I entirely. The when the covered. trial comes, it's going to be a big one. But uh, I was just pointing out that often that's what happens. Yeah. This is not going to be one of those cases. This is going to be one of those cases where we're going to get to hear what takes place in the trial. Awesome. Well, Paul, thanks again for joining me on the podcast. Thank you very much. <laughs> how many weeks was I off? I, two? Two. Two I weeks think. off. Yeah, well, you had really good guests. If you haven't listened to the uh, the Ron Moore one, make sure you listen to it because he is a very interesting, balanced guy. Uh, and that yeah. was a good podcast. If you didn't was... listen last week. You're missing out on important information. Yeah. And come back next week when there will be other fun, important, interesting, driving information with Kyla Lee and maybe me, unless there's someone else I get bumped for. Yeah, could be. All right. And now on to Roy. Thank you again to Roy Ho for joining us again on the Driving Law Podcast. Roy, you're becoming a mainstay here. I am, and I'm happy to always be here. I think I should become a permanent seat here and become a co-host for the show. <laughs> I think you should. You provide an interesting perspective. Paul and I are sometimes like an echo chamber repeating back the same ideas. We don't have enough disagreement. You tend to disagree with us. <laughs> sometimes, sometimes. Yeah. Well, I wanted to get your thoughts on this ICBC fee. A $50 fee if you're letting somebody that's not the principal driver drive your vehicle. What do you think about that? Uh, I think it's um, un an unlisted driver. I don't even know if it's really principal. But you as, have to pay to list as, as long drivers. As long as you list. No, actually, um, you don't have to. You do pay, not a flat fee. Um, your premiums would be adjusted according to the people you're listing kind of thing. Right. So it, if you... It's for everybody that's not listed. So it could be principal operator, doesn't have to be. As long as they're not listed, that's what the $50 fee is for. And is that for like any time somebody uses your car, like you loan your your car to your friend because you've been drinking and he needs to run to the grocery store to get ice? Yes. Yeah. Um, it's for anybody. Do $50 for each person or just $50 for everybody that might potentially use your car? For anybody who's not named on the policy and according to the released um, media report is that only 12 times a year it could be used. Okay. All right. In that so, circumstance? So you could pay one fifty dollar fee and twelve times a year have someone, whoever that is, that's not listed on the policy, drive your car. Yeah. And you it's twelve not, strangers. <laughs> twelve twelve strangers exactly. Twelve strangers is a good way to put it. Um it it's not very clear in a lot of the details. They say that there's exemptions like medical emergency, which I don't know what might be one. Uh, well, what if you get, uh, you have a stroke and somebody needs to drive you in your car to the hospital? Yeah. So I, I would, that, I would that imagine. seems like a medical emergency to me. <laughs> but what about the less 
obvious ones. Like I had a tummy ache or I'm feeling dizzy or like, you know, like I don't know what what they're calling medical emergency. Right. And I guess that'll have to be litigated. Uh, Perhaps. Yeah. And And I think policing it is going to be difficult too. the the 12 times a year. What's the consequence? Like, how do you know that somebody's done this more than 12 times a year? It that that's I, I I don't know what system they're going to put into place. It's very unclear whether it's you could do it twelve times in a month. Is it once a month? Is it uh, a fiscal year? Is it uh, a calendar year? Is it um, you the know when the policy? Year? Yeah, like when the policy is in effect. You know all that kind of stuff. Um, because uh, some people don't buy their policies by year. Some people buy three months at a time, right? Or, a month or at a time. temporary or whatever it may be, right? So it's really, it's kind of unclear right now. Um, I, I really don't know how they would police it uh, other than by self-disclosure uh, of the policyholder. Right. So it's going to be yet another one of those situations where people, if they're involved in an accident and their driver is one of these unlisted people, they're then interrogated about how many times and who's driven their vehicle. And if ICBC thinks that they're not telling the truth, you get ICBC fraud charges. That's yeah. Not, yeah. So it sounds like just another recipe for disaster and abuse by the corporation. Yes, um, it would cer- certainly going to be messy, I would think. And what about like how this discourages people from relying on designated drivers, not just like, hey, buddy, you haven't been drinking. Can you drive my car? But also those services where some person you've never met before comes in another vehicle and they drive you and your car home. L- like keys, please. And yeah, ride safe. And yeah, um, sure, there, there's there's. There's nothing that's said about those services right now, um, but part, one exemption that was uh, spouted out was um, Operation Red Nose. Isn't I was going to say the ICBC has their own designated driving service at Christmas. Yeah, and that one is an exemption. So they didn't say anything else about the uh, private businesses uh, and the private businesses really aren't they're not a regulated business so that could be a reason why but wouldn't it have been easy for the corporation to write an exemption and to require these businesses to register and be regulated uh well i don't think that would be really their c- completely all their say as an insurance company i but think it'd David be Eby could do it yeah i think he could and he's um, in charge of icbc it, i mean pres- uh, presumably or or in theory, I, I think that they could actually write in an exemption for um, designated drivers uh, as such. But I, I think as it stands right now, it does discourage people from, if they didn't buy this, uh, to let somebody who's unlisted to drive the car. Because if they get in an accident, that's your premiums go up. Right. right? Yeah. And and how is it now? Like if before this, if I loaned my car to you, you're not registered on my insurance and you drove it like a moron and got in an accident, what happens to my premiums? Your, your premiums would go up right now. Mine would go up. Yeah, yours would go up too. So that doesn't change then? It doesn't, it, it doesn't seem to change um, really uh, in the new system. It, it's essentially that $50 from what it seems to me is that it will enable the premium surcharge to attach to that unlisted driver instead of you. I don't follow. So <laughs> r- right now, if uh, I crash your car, you lend it to me with permission and all that, and then your premiums go up, not mine. 
Um, oh, actually, there are circumstances where it could attach to me. If you actually canceled your insurance, then the premium surcharge has to go somewhere. So it'll go on to me afterwards. All right. So right. if you ever crash my car before this $50 thing comes into effect, phone me before you phone ICBC so I can quickly cancel my insurance. <laughs> uh, actually, fraud, no. by the way. That is fraud. Do not do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah, it, it, you could actually do it even afterwards. It, it just has to go somewhere, that surcharge. Right. Yeah. And then, so then right now, if that if I board your car crash, it, your premiums go up. In the, the, the new quote-unquote system, um, if the unlisted driver drives it, they crash it, your premiums go up, exact same thing. Um, the $50 uh, surcharge or flat fee that they're charging, what it seems to me is that it will, instead of your premiums going up now, it'll go to the unlisted driver. Oh. So you're paying $50 to get it off you. Oh, okay. Yeah, to, to, so it gets attached to the person driving. And is it a breach of your insurance conditions if you don't pay the $50 and somebody is driving your car? Like, if I don't give ICBC 50 bucks as the unlisted no, driver. No, it, it's not. And it, then it, you drive my car... What happens? Do I get breached? No, no, no. It's a product. They're they're selling another product, like a, an optional product, like kind of so like you don't have to get this at all. No, you don't. Well, it's just the uproar. You just because it's essentially it's like strong arming. It, they they wow. effectively give you, or they sell it as if you have a choice, but in reality you actually don't because it's fifty dollars. Who's going to run that risk of having a few thousand dollars more next year in premium surcharge? Why don't you just pay the $50 instead? So it's de facto no choice. It's kind of like the ump, right? Where uh, y y you, you're not required to buy a ton of third-party liability, but if everybody else also doesn't buy a ton of third-party liability and you don't pay your 25 bucks, you're not getting coverage. It, it is similar to the ump. It's an additional product just like that, and you add on to your policy for extra protection. And sorry, just for people who don't know, the ump is the uninsured motorist protection um, so, or so underinsured. I guess. That, that one's a little bit different, though. I think in comparison, only in one respect is that that protects you, um, the ump. Uh, so in case somebody is underinsured, then you will be properly compensated. The $50 surcharge thing, it more punishes you. Like, it, that's my view of it. If you don't buy it, it punishes you. Because then if you say even not even the drunk driving context, maybe if I was tired, um, and, you know, let's talk about keeping roads safe. I'm just sleepy and I want to have my friend drive, but he's not listed. It's a higher accident I didn't buy tired than drunk. Right, exactly, right? And that, that's a more common occurrence, uh, people being tired, maybe a long day or whatever it may be. Mm -hmm. um, if I didn't buy that $50 thing and this person isn't listed, I run the risk of, if he gets in an accident, I run the risk of having my premiums go up. So I think it punishes me more than it protects me. The ump protects me from, like, in case people don't have enough insurance. Right. Yeah. But, I mean, if people don't have enough insurance, you can get what you can from ICBC and then sue them for the remainder. If you loaned your car to somebody, and they just use the example of just driving like an a-hole, yeah. they were really aggressive and completely disrespectful with your very expensive, you know, two-ton piece of, of death machinery on the road, um, to borrow the words of many police officers. <laughs> um, if 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 that happened and they caused an accident and your premiums went up, could you theoretically sue the other person for the increase in premiums because of their negligence? Yeah, you you in theory, I think you can. Uh, even right now, you can. Uh, the but the practical reality of it is that nobody's doing it because it would cost you more money than what you're saving generally. 
it's the premium. principle, Roy. <laughs> Sometimes it is. You shouldn't have driven my car that way. Like for most drivers, um, I mean, like if they if they starting at zero, like mm-hmm. year one, uh, I'm a new driver, um, I'm at a zero discount. If they got into that fault accident, I believe it only goes up thirty uh, percent, which it's it's a lot of money. I think it's almost a thousand dollars or something like that a year. Wow. But it's not an insurmountable amount. Of money well it's an insurmountable amount of money for a lot of people i mean relative to suing for that thousand dollars right okay. yeah, yeah. The, the cost of the litigation would be far more than a thousand dollars and that's year. why it, it, it be, it's so impractical that it becomes no real solution and it would would it also potentially be a defense to such a lawsuit that if uh sort of what is it the isn't there a defense to a lawsuit that if um, reasonable standards of an industry require that you have insurance for something and you don't have that insurance, you can't sue somebody because you didn't have the insurance? Is that a thing? I feel I, like I read that somewhere, but that might it, be in a very specific context. It, that sounds very American, but <laughs> okay. I, I like, I don't know if there was such a thing. I don't know how that interplay with universal coverage, which is statutorily required. Right. So then in that circumstance, I guess there is no difference anyways if there is such a common law principle right because we're forced to buy this much anyways yeah but you're not forced to buy the 50 dollars. but if it's if it's you know the the reasonable standard as you're saying it's you know it's essentially you have no choice but to buy it um if the reasonable standard is that you buy it perhaps you're more at fault for not buying it and then being stupid about loaning your car out to someone who doesn't drive it nicely hmm Maybe. I, I mean, if you want to, if you want to I'm not going to be defending any of these lawsuits or bringing any of them, but. <laughs> well, I'm just thinking if it is the reasonable standard, then it would be more um, of a widespread uh, occurrence or, or, or the general populist kind of behavior sure. and conduct. I guess um, you could get those stats after this $50 thing goes into effect right. of how many people buy it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that that might be a good indication, but then the flip side of it is, what about the practice of um, lending my car to somebody right now? With you know, listed unlisted doesn't matter. I think it's a very, it's common, very common. Exactly, it's a very common behave practice for people my to car, go. My car needs to go for service, and I'm like, oh, just take my car. Or, or can you move my car for I'm me? Busy. Yeah, yeah. Oh, exactly. Right. I parked behind the office. I've got one minute before a hearing. Can you go drive my car to my parking spot? Like t- tons of those situations, and I think that I mean reasonable standard then. Isn't that the reasonable standard that lending the car to an unlisted person, quote unquote, is what the reasonable standard is, the practice is, right? I, I think it's it's a little bit different to go, oh, everybody's going to buy this. I just feel like that they're, I think one commentator said that it's like a government racketeering uh, scheme, right? But, it's a cash grab, right? That's what it well, is. Of but of course. I mean, isn't everything that the government does when it comes to driving a cash grab? Because... People will, as much as they hate it, pay for the privilege slash right of being able to drive. Yes. Not, o- not only because they want to be able to drive and lots of people enjoy driving, but also because people need to be able they're, to they're drive. So, so dependent. they have no choice. They're so dependent on it in modern well, day society, right? Well, and plenty of people need to be able to drive to run their businesses. I mean, you, yeah. you don't go to court much anymore, <laughs> um, but I go to court all the time and I have to drive here, there and everywhere all day, every day. Yeah. No, but lots of people drive for a living and all that, and, and even commuting too. I mean, you live in a big city; uh, people work across the municipal boundaries all the time, right? Like a lot of people commute to here to there for work or whatnot. 
you know, it's not it's not like a small town where you can just bike or take one bus or something like that, and it, you'll be there There's in fifteen no minutes. Buses in small towns. Well, a small a smaller town. <laughs> <laughs> I can tell you've lived your whole life in Vancouver. I grew up in a small town. <laughs> Believe it was it was a forty minute walk to the bus stop, and that bus did not come reliably. <laughs> anyway, um, yeah, I, I guess yeah, and and. Do you find that frustrating, like as somebody who works in an area of driving law, sort of that drivers are frequently viewed as a source of revenue because of the necessity of driving for so many people? Yeah, no, I I, I do see that, actually. It's very true. I think people are so attached to driving. Uh, it's, such, it's such a convenience that it becomes um, almost like an appendage to people, right? A lot of people, like they're just, they don't, they can't fathom um a lot of times I talk to clients and I'm like, well, they go, oh, I need my car, this, that, and the other, and I can't, whatever. And I'm like, well, you could bust. No, no, it doesn't even cross their mind that these things are, are available, yeah. right? Or, yeah. you, you know, you suggest to them that they don't need a, a test for a necessity of a license because of the reasons they need to keep it. And they're like, but it's really inconvenient. Like, yes, ex- precisely, right? It but is. It, <laughs> it's like the end of the world to them is the message I get from the, some of these clients. So, I mean, I, that's a sense I get that a lot of people are just so dependent on their cars that... You know, it, it becomes um, almost uh, like grudge money. A, a little bit because what most people, at least the ones that can afford it, I mean, certainly there are groups of people that are barely getting by. Maybe $50 is too much uh, to shell out in a year, perhaps. But I think the majority of people would wind up paying for this just because of how nominal that fee is relative to the risk cost and all that kind of stuff. Right. And that's, I guess, the underlying principle of insurance is nominal fee relative to risk. Right. Or why I really need to get on getting me some disability insurance. <laughs> yeah, I did that last year, too. Yeah. After you have kids. You, you have kids. <laughs> yeah, that's, what, that's what happens. You start thinking about all these things. You're like, oh, my God, something could happen to me yeah. and my kids. But uh, yeah. the, the that's where I'm saying that I don't feel like it's a true choice that they're actually giving people. And, you know, when, when, when like, David Eby says, like, oh, we're going to save you money on insurance next year because we're making all these great changes. You're, you're actually paying more from these kind of systems, these flat feet. Because now, oh, I might have saved, like, they said that, I think, um, in the last podcast, we were talking about how the average was, like, $100 saving for most drivers. Well, now everybody's going to buy $50, so your savings is really $50. What else are they going to add on, you know, in six months? Where, like, you feel like you don't have a choice, but they tell you you don't have to buy if you don't want to, but... Right. So, overall, do you say that this additional $50 fee for this coverage is unnecessary evil do you support it uh i i think it has you have to wait and see and see how it pans out Uh, i don't think the the way that it's um set up might be the best way it's like it's not the maybe it's a little bit evil i guess i don't know like (laughs) but it could work out like the idea is that um you know it the, the whole um underlying theme is that driver uh Premiums should go to the driver, the at-fault driver. So that's what they're telling us, that that's what the system is there to also support that um, concept. Okay. Well, you heard it here first, folks. Wait and see. And uh, here's hoping that maybe somebody out there listening has some influence on exceptions and could add some principled exceptions for things like designated drivers, which to me just makes really good public sense. Thank you again, Roy, for joining us on the podcast. It's been a pleasure as always to have you. Thank you for having me.
Thanks for tuning in again to another episode of Driving Law. I'm Kyla Lee at Acumen Law Corporation. And if you like our podcast, you can follow it on Twitter. It's got its own Twitter account at Driving Law Pod. Or you can uh, reach out to us at Acumen Law, uh, VancouverCriminalLaw.com, or give me a call, 604-685-8889, or shoot me an email. My email's on the website, um, and I'm happy to take any of your driving-related questions. Next week, we'll be back with more driving law content, because it's driving law that drives the law. 